0: Good morning. So if you would please stand this morning's uh, responsive reading, we will read uh, Psalm 28, verses 1 through 9, which is all of them. You'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 566. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit.
1: Hear the voice of my soul.
0: Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts.
1: Requite them according to their work, according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands.
0: Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor, he de- nor the deeds of his hands. He will tear them down and not build them up.
1: Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication.
0: The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him.
1: The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save
0: Save your people and bless your your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Amen. Please be seated. It's uh, it's interesting that we now do the responsive reading after uh, after the the uh, prayers, and here in this psalm, right away with verse one, it kind of goes right along with what we just did with the with the uh, with the prayers. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For uh, if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. With the prayers that were just presented, we know that the Lord was listening. We know that there, because of our faith in him, because he is faithful to us, he is the, the, the God who can hear our prayers. There's times within the scriptures where he will kind of mock, the, the, the writer will kind of mockingly say, Well, go ahead, build a, an idol. Put ears on it, put eyes on it, it out of the wood or metal, whatever it might be. But can they hear? Can they see? Because we know that our God hears and sees, that he cares, he listens. Um, David had those same sentiments. And again, I I can't help but but see that these words that we read are very much like the prayers we present to God as well. They're coming from the heart. They aren't going through a a series of sacrifices or presentations before an altar or anything of great uh, ceremony. But rather it is a person who knows that God is with them. It is one who is in faith with God and trusting God. Depends on God. David did it so long ago, and we do it yet today. We know that the Lord that we pray to hears our prayers, hears our supplications, our cries for help, and that he cares. And whatever that outcome might be, whether it's one that we desire or it's one that he wants us to see, his his plan for us, we need to continue our trust in him. Um... David goes through this entire psalm and talking about how uh, God listens to those he, he that come before Him in faith, but that He does not listen to the prayers of the wicked and that stay away from Him. He, in the last verse here, it says, "Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forward." Again, it's 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 heartfelt calling out. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Well, if God owns everything, what could he inherit? But what he inherits, what he died for to inherit, was us, the church. And that here, David, I kind of think he senses that. And he sees that, as he mentioned in Psalm 23, where, be their shepherd also, for he is the living head of the church. He is the one in whom, wh- whose voice we listen to. And that, and that his prayer is, and carry them forever. We see Jesus so often in pictures as he walks through the fields or what have you. He's carrying a lamb, sometimes on his shoulders. And it represents his caring. And you, and you, and you can see it exemplified in the picture. But here David's saying, carry them. Carry the church, bring them with you forever. Shepherd them, and it's such a peace of mind and heart to know that that relationship that we have today is the same relationship that we will have forever. My ship's about to leave. Um, I gotta get going. Oh no, that, but that's all I have. All right, thank you.
2: He <laughs> giveth when the burden grows greater, he sendeth more strength. When the labors increase, to add affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiply trials. His multiplied peace, his love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no bound. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. For his love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no bound. Ba- of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again oh his love has no limit his grace has no measure his power
1: been in this uh, season of saturation is what we've begun the, fa- the past uh, two weeks. And the goal is to sort of bring us through this booklet that I had handed out last week. Perfectly, everybody has a copy of it. If you do not, there's another copy available in the foyer for you. Now, last week we talked about the problem of inertia, which again is the not doing something. It's the opposite of action. So you have an a- inertia is when the people are inhibited from acting. And uh, our teaching last week was that what we need to be is we need to be committed to action. And ultimately, I had highlighted that song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. And I said that we need to be a people who have that exemplify a symphony, which is a bunch of people coming into agreement, coming together, lifting up song and strength for the glory of God. And that was my challenge to. Go against inertia last week is that we would develop a song that each and every one of us would have a song that we sing to the glory of God. Again, something that is visible. As I explained, the Hebrew word uh, is a word for a visible expression. That's what the word for song would be. And it's again, I had emphasized that it's like going like yes or you know an NFL touchdown and they do the dance at the end of the touchdown. So that we all need to have that visible expression for the glory of God. And then of course the strength, the you know the work of God in our lives that you can see that God is giving and giving again, that we would have that strength, that people would see that perseverance with us. So our first chapter in this booklet that I had given you, they have you do a circle. They want you, they call it rake a circle. And I had mentioned this earlier um, from Acts chapter one, verse eight, that you would mark out your Jerusalem. Here in the booklet, they tell you to write your Jerusalem is your zip code. I would challenge you otherwise. I would say your Jerusalem is those people, because again, we live in such a, big society now that the people that are your Jerusalem in your real life are not always the people that live right in your zip code again there's some lamentation we should offer up to that right that we're not in constant contact with our neighbors but again we all know that we have people in our lives that we would identify as our Jerusalem so I do want to challenge you this morning to begin thinking that through you might write maybe four circles if you did not use the book the book seems to offer you a uh An outline. You know, who, who's your Jerusalem, who's your Judea, how are you praying for them, how are you planning to saturate them with the gospel this season? And again, this is a six-week book, so I'm prayerfully, if we do go through it, and I believe that if we're consistent and we actually go through this, um, that we may see a lot more to the glory of God. Or we may see the fulfillment of John 7, where it says that you will have living waters flowing out of your innermost being. Again, the whole purpose of that living water is that you would saturate the world around you. that we would constantly be saturating the world. Um, Again, as Ezekiel prophesied, that the water of life would flow from the temple of God, his people, and it would saturate everything. And it would bring healing to everything that it touches. So I know I've marked out my Jerusalem. I'm ready to get to action and to begin doing the saturation. And I pray that many of you will follow me in that process. So as we move forward in this little study guide here, they bring us into the next thing that seems to inhibit the saints, from saturating the world if inertia wasn't enough of a problem the lack of action consider how the saints often feel insignificant and I know I'm not only speaking for myself I imagine every single but every single person in this room has felt insignificant at some point in your life we might say we might find ourselves saying something like the world is such a mess remember last week we said the world is such a mess why bother right inertia Why bother? There's no way to fix that nightmare of a mess out there. Unfortunately, when we begin to think about being insignificant, the question we say is, what difference will my effort make? You know, everybody's hungry, and you want me to go out there and feed one person. What difference does it make? It's insignificant. Obviously, we all know that that's not true. Jesus and the boy with the loaves and the fish, they they use this in this booklet here, when we look at that story of Jesus, you know, the boy has the loaves and the fish, and he says, give me them, and he begins to feed the, is it 5,000 that he feeds with? Five, okay, so he feeds 5,000 with a very small amount of fish and bread. The point of that story, as they propose in this booklet, was to show that even insignificant things can be used if they're done by God in magnificent ways, in glorious ways. Just like that little, what, what's my little lunch going to be able to do with all of these people? What does Jesus say? Give it to me. Let me show you how significant this lunch can become for the glory of God. Then, of course, you read about the parable of the talents, right? That one guy that seemed to have a small talent, what does he do? He says, I'm going to hide it. Everybody else receives a, you know, they've seen how significant their increase would be. And yet this man says, mine's going to be very insignificant. Let me just hide it here and hope that I have something when the Lord comes. And unfortunately, we know what happens at the end of that parable, that that man does not receive a good admonishment. Because again, he should have seen that no matter what you have, it's significant, no matter what your part is. What if God has uniquely appointed you to reach a specific nook and cranny, again, I'm borrowing this, in the world that no one else can? I believe that. I believe everybody in this room has been created by God for a reason that only you can fulfill that reason. Only you can fulfill the significance that God has marked out the, what you are supposed to be significant in. The question is, are you willing to do the small things because of the compulsion that comes from God? Are you willing to find how significant God has truly made you to be? I do urge us this morning to a write down, maybe a nook and a cranny, that you feel God has worked, uh, built you up, that has created you to reach. I think of our church right here, Blue Point Bible Church. This is something as I went through this study. Again, I'm, I'm going through this study individually, but also corporately because I'm thinking for our church. How can not only I saturate the people around me, how can our search, our church, saturate mix the words there um, How can our church saturate the world around us? So as I started to think, well, what is the nook and cranny that our church seems to fit? And as a pastor, you know, I go to a lot of pastor meetings, and one of the things I like to ask other pastors, a question that was asked to me early on in ministry, was, if the church that you're leading disappeared from its location, would the community know, what would be missing? What would your church's influence now taken away leave a void in? And I think for us, as Bluepoint, I think, again, our, our title on our banner that we had out front for a while was a thinking faith. I think that is the nook and cranny that we touch, that this world, unfortunately, there's many people that feel Christians don't think, as we watched a video in our Sunday school this morning, where there's a lot of things thrown around about who's right, who's wrong. And um, I think that not only do we press into thinking and searching, we do it in a humble and graceful way. And I believe that if we maximize that and we, we realize that that is the nook and cranny that God has ordained that we would reach, that we would be a people that can think, we can talk, we can fellowship, and we can disagree, and we can do it gracefully, and we can do it as a, a, you know, a strong people of God that, are, that know the things that need to be made clear, that major in the major areas of the Word of God. I believe we have that. I believe that's our nook and cranny that we are pressing into. We're not a church that argues about the type of worship we do. We're not a church that argues about what specific things you need to believe to be saved. We're not a church that believes you're saved on a certain rung, you know, at baptism or confession. or, or and, and that's beautiful. We may have our own areas that each and every one of us feel are a little bit more important or that we might need to press into a bit more. But the way that we do it is just so beautiful. And, you know, I brag about our church to, uh, you know, and I, I think there's a there's scriptural foundation for that because God's present here. And Paul said that we can boast in Christ then we can fittingly boast in the church because Christ is present here. I think the nook and cranny, if you will, that our church really does press into is that we, ende- we endeavor to bring forth clarity, not confusion. It's not always done, but we endeavor to do that in all that we do. So I do want to encourage you that as a, corporate, as a member of this corporate entity here, this church, make the commitment to walk in the fullness of that this week to walk in the fullness of exemplifying and living out a thinking faith. So now I want to bring us into a little bit of a teaching, something more in line with that thinking faith that uh, would cause us to think through what we believe this morning. Many of us have heard that we live in a revisionist culture, a culture that loves to change history again and again, redefine history, look at history in many different ways, unfortunately to the point that we forget where we came from. It's a very popular problem in our culture. Unfortunately, what this could be referred to as historical amnesia. We suffer from a historical amnesia. And I'll tell you, it's alive and well in the church. Christians suffer from a historical amnesia. Our interpretations are more often than not lacking historical and cultural context and are based upon presuppositions and proof texting. And I'm going to unpack that pretty lengthy statement there. Our interpretations are more often than not based upon what we might read out of the Scripture and seem to think that applies to us rather than saying, what culture did this come from? What part of history does this piece of information come to us from? And then when we gain that, the next problem we end up having, if we do believe in context and cultural context and historical context, the next problem we bump into is presuppositions. We then take the information that, yes, we might find the context of it, but then we take the information and we, we forget that we have presuppositions. We have things that we believed from when we were this big to now. We all have them. We all share them. Um, I, I'm forgetting off the top of my head right now what famous Christian scholars said that we do not know how far our presuppositions have actually carried us, how far they have in, been entrenched into the things that we believe. So not only do we need to have context, we then need to say, well, what presuppositions do I carry? Why do I carry them? Where did I get them from? Are they true? And then after doing that, which is also a part of analyzing history, because right, you need to know what you learned throughout your life, then the next thing we have a problem with is proof texting. We all do it. It's okay. We all do it. We take our favorite Bible verse and we just run with it because we know that it means that. I know that I know, regardless of what it says five verses after, five verses before, or other places of scripture. We have this, uh, this common trait where we read something that sounds alike here and we say, oh, well, that must mean the same thing over there because it says that over there. Not always the case. We need to study in context. We need to be We need to shake our heads at proof texting, taking verses out of the Bible and just saying, well, Galatians chapter one, verse five says is not a healthy way to think about our Bible. The Bible wasn't even created to be that way. Again, the numbers and the verses and the chapters were all there for study helps to help us study, to know where we're going in the book, not necessarily to develop interpretations based on verses and then taking 15 verses, lining them up in a column and saying, look at my good doctrine. That's no, that's not the way we need to do this. So I want to, one of the things I'm hoping this morning is to have you shaking your heads. I know we all shake our heads at lacking context, right? Everybody knows that famous uh, phrase there, um, a text that lacks context is just a con, right? So uh, so I think I got us there. I think we're all in the same boat when it comes to context, Um Presuppositions. I believe most of us would admit that we all carry presuppositions. When presupposition is something you believe without studying it out or something you believe just because tradition tells you so. And then I know I have us convinced on proof texting because everybody in this room has had a discussion with me where I have and you have proof texted. So it's just important for us to admit that as we get into our talk this morning. We all do it. Proof texting, unfortunately, becomes used and abused scripture rather than understood and applied scripture perfectly catch the power of that it would seem that god he knew ahead of time that this was going to be a problem his people would have both old covenant people and new covenant people all men as was exemplified and as is exemplified through the biblical story as well as in natural history would much rather lean upon their own imaginations their wicked imaginations as my notes say and devise idols rather than cleave to the truth of God. Again, this is not only known about Israel and the Bible, how they just keep going, like, get with it, people. He gave you the truth. Keep in line with the truth. He said you would be blessed if you stayed in line with the truth, but they still follow after their vain imaginations and build Asherah poles and, and worship the Baals. And then, of course, you see the, the nations that were out there, they had all sorts of things. All you have to do is read a couple prophets, and you see they you know, they continue to uh, mock the the idols as Pastor Steve pointed out in our responsive reading this morning that you know the idols are you can build whatever you want that thing is not listening or I like when Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal and he says is he sleeping you know where is your god why does he not hear so my point is is that everybody whether they were the people of God Israel in the old covenant whether they were the gentiles in the old covenant whether they are people today unfortunately the human mind as John Calvin said it is a manufacturer of idols he said the heart, but I'm going to insert the mind. It's a strange phenomenon indeed that we, uh, we love false teaching rather than truth. However, it would seem that the Hebraic culture and their religion was the answer to such historical amnesia. What God did was called his people to himself, and he gave them oracles. As we see in Romans 3.2, it says, To them the oracles of God were given. And these oracles highlighted the truth about God and his will. All throughout these oracles are historical events marked out with emphasis and praise. For example, Exodus chapter 15, 14 and 15, where we're reading about them coming through that the Sea of Reeds, and they are um, the Red Sea, and they are coming through the Red Sea, and they are ultimately taken through on dry land, and then they lift up praise. That Those two chapters, Exodus 14 and 15, are used throughout your Bible in so many different places. They're used again and again to highlight an important picture of God, what God would do for his people. In some of my other teachings, I refer to this as conceptual realities. It was what God wanted his people to continually think about. In talking about the Exodus, we know that God created a distinction between his people and Egypt. Egypt, he brought forth judgments upon. His people, he brought salvation. Both seen the judgments, but both it, it affected both people in two different ways. Egypt obviously suffered loss, and judgment, whereas his people were saved and gained freedom from bondage. I would say this seems to be the way that God makes known true spirituality to his people, continually through historical events that are marked out with emphasis and praise. And again, I refer to that as a conceptual reality. This true spirituality would elevate the people above the carnal ways of the nations around them. It would give them the truth about God. Whereas the nations around them obsessed about the other world and phenomenon and looked at the, you know, made a God for the ocean, made a God for the sky and and did all these otherworldly things. God simply said, I'm going to be with you through the course of your history and there's going to be things that you're going to experience that I am going to remind you to mark out. For example, the Exodus. I am going to cause you to mark this situation out and this is going to inform your spirituality. This moment that I save you and bring you through and I create a distinction between you and the Egyptians. This is called conceptual, what I'm proposing to you. Again, I have a very big frustration with what I see as otherworldly spirituality, which looks more in line with the pagans and the Greeks and all the other false religions. Um, Conceptual is something that would affect the mind, and thereby would affect the heart, the body, and the entire being. So it seems that God, he makes things known that affect the mind primarily. Again, like a historical situation. Marks it out and says, I want you to remember the Exodus. Remember what I did. Think about that in your Bible. How many places do you see? Remember what I did in the Exodus. Remember the plagues that I brought forth on Egypt. Remember Egypt and your slavery in Egypt. He keeps saying it again and again and again. The Exodus and the song of praise that follows, what we marked out last week as the song of Moses, otherwise known as the song of the sea, are surely conceptual realities. And are also mentioned by Bible scholars to be what are called motifs. Again, biblical patterns that are found throughout the scriptures. An exodus motif, the exodus motif is used again and again, namely as a picture of judgment. We marked this out a couple months ago as we looked at the plagues that were brought forth upon Egypt and ultimately the Israelites leaving from Egypt. So the text I want to take us to this morning is Exodus chapter 15. It's just three verses. Exodus chapter 15, verses 16 through 19. This is a part of the Song of Moses that we talked about last week. It says here, Terror and dread shall fall upon them, talking about Moab and Canaan and Edom. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of the Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea." I have to say, I appreciate uh, the insights from Ray Vanderlaan. We used to watch him in our Wednesday night Bible studies. And he has a series on Exodus called God Heard Their Cry. And this is what he said about this picture we see here. From this point on, the lives of the Israelites and their culture would never be the same. Their commitment to God's lordship required them to participate and follow obediently in his ongoing redemptive story. God had now called these people to bring peace into the chaos of a sinful world, to be like him to the other nations, to learn from his grace and to obey his will. And he further challenges us that if we stand with the Israelites and seek to understand and celebrate their deliverance as they experienced it, we will more appreciate fully the grace-filled message and work of Jesus Christ. Because again, from this moment here, what we are seeing in this chapter, Exodus chapters 14 and 15, is the baptism into Moses. That's what it will be called all throughout scripture. After this baptism into Moses by these people, after their taking out of bondage, their baptism into this new life in Moses, things would never be the same. These people would see the victory of God on their behalf, which they did see with the plagues and the bringing through the water. And they would see that God gave them victory. There was a distinction between them and others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that the baptism into Moses was an example for them upon whom the ends of the ages had come. So that means that whatever we're reading here in Exodus chapters 14 and 15 are examples for what was happening in the New Testament, in the New Testament time, first century. It's important to think about. It says, the the Greek word there is telos, it's the goal, it's not, it's upon, the ends of the ages actually is the goal of the ages. That's what the way it would actually be uh, translated from the Greek, the goal of the ages. So I'm going to turn to it real quickly. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, now these things happened to them as an example, talking about the baptism of Moses. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends or the goal of the ages has come. So it's important to consider what happened here with the baptism of Moses to understand the example of what was happening at the goal of the ages in the first century. I would say the goal of the ages can be very easily summed up by taking a look over at Ephesians chapter 1. It says that at the time of his fullness, he will, speaking about future tense things, sum up all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. It was made clear that everything was summed up in Jesus. If you did not have Jesus, you suffered loss. Just like if you weren't a part of Israel and coming out of Egypt, you suffered loss. If you weren't identified with those people, that's why many Egyptians, when they left, remember many Egyptians joined them. If you were not of those people that God had created a distinction between, you would suffer loss. And that was the example that was being made known in the first century, that if you were not of these people that identified with Jesus, you would suffer loss. If you were not baptized into Jesus like, the first, like those that people that were baptized into Moses, you would suffer loss. Another interesting thing about this text here in 1 Corinthians 10 is that we need to rightly identify us. Unfortunately, a large part of Christianity has wrongly identified the us, and they demand that this is a text for us. That we should be looking back to the baptism of Moses and saying, this is an example for us upon whom the end of the the ages has come. Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me that it seems that to have that view, they don't understand what the goal of the ages was. Because again, as a preterist, I can look back and I can see what the goal of the ages was and how it was established in that generation just as it was supposed to be. Whereas, if I don't know what the goal of the ages is, which Ephesians 1 again clarifies... I can end up stretching this text, and that's what, unfortunately, many people do with this text. It can apply to us. The baptism of Moses can surely serve as an example to us, meaning us. However, we must rightly apply the story. Again, we must not fall in line with this historical amnesia. I don't believe I have to belabor this point among us this morning. However, even within the preterist community that speaks about context, we find many interpretations based upon falsely taking pronouns and then just applying them to us. Even as preterists, we do this. It says us, so it must mean us. No, not necessarily. It's not that easy. And we do this, again, I don't know if this is done always intentionally or not. I think sometimes we just miss the point that the pronoun isn't necessarily talking about us. However, what I do know is this is not rightly dividing the word of truth and the scriptures say that if we rightly divide the word of truth We need not be ashamed I don't want to look at the opposite what I will say is that We must become saturated by truth if we choose to saturate other people with truth We must become so immersed in this story this living water this truth rather than stagnant dirty water And i'll tell you out of context saturation, being saturated with a message that is out of context of the scriptures leads to spiritual dehydration. I like that, right? Got a one-liner. Came up with my one-liner. So I want to, uh, I want to conclude with some points. What we're talking about here is type and anti-type. Right? We're talking about a smaller picture, the baptism of Moses, and the bigger picture, baptism in Christ. The baptism in Moses signified coming out of Egypt, entering into the promised land, and living under the Old Covenant. Ultimately, as you sum up the baptism into Moses, that's what it would come to be. Obviously, these people that were being baptized into Moses, what they understood was the actual coming out of Egypt, going through the waters of the Red Sea and experiencing the miraculous wonders of God. We know that that generation would not be the generation to to experience the entering into the promised land. We know that generation died off in the wilderness. And then the generation that moved into the land ultimately would not be the last generation to live in the land under the promises of God. There would be generations to come that would live in the land under the promises to come. However, my point is all those people were summed up as being baptized into Moses. So now let's look at the Antitype. You have the first century of the saints that are coming out of the law, right? And they're coming out of the law by what? Being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have the first century saints And we know Jesus' words, right? Matthew chapter 16, he says, some standing here in front of me will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the good news about the anti-type is that actually some of the generation that would experience the coming out of the law would be the people that would enter into the promised land. You see, in the first type, they didn't enter into the promised land, that generation. But the generation that lived with Christ in His first century and he said, some of you will be alive, you will experience the going into the promised land or what our Bible calls the change of the living. They would experience that. Some of those that were in Jesus' ministry experienced the change, the Greek word alasso, the change of mind, the full conviction that would come by watching that temple be destroyed. Some of the saints right there in front of Jesus. So there's those that are coming out of the law that Jesus is preaching to, being baptized into Jesus Christ. Those that actually witnessed the cross. Those that actually witnessed the resurrection some of those that actually witnessed the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And then, and all, those two people are composed, those that are baptized into Christ. And then you have a third group, those that actually live in the promise after the promise has been done, right? Because we already categorized that being baptized into Moses were also the people that the generations that lived in the land after they had entered into the promised land. So my point is, is that in Christ, we are still the people that are baptized into Christ and it carries all the way back to that first century. That's the antitype, And again, it's still going. We're still considered, this is to say goodbye to the IO theory there, um, we are still considered the people that are baptized into Christ because now we are the people that are living in the land. We're bringing forth the promise that God had promised in that first century and ultimately will continue for eternity. We need to consider these things. We need to rightly understand how that baptism of Moses as a type applies as an antitype to the baptism in Christ, not only for the first century generation and the generations that followed, but even today for us. You might say that it's the baptism into Moses' old covenant, baptism into Christ, or the inbreaking of the new covenant, and then generations to follow that are living in the fullness of that covenant. We are the people in the land, generations in the promised land. I have to say I've really enjoyed our Latest discussions in our Sunday school, talking about being in Adam. I appreciate many of you who work with me through these details. In so many ways. Again, we're a very different congregation, we sort of bounce ideas. Some of us are more into the details, some of us are more worried about the majors, you know, and I think we kind of keep each other well balanced. Surely emphasize the glory of God through our church. I hope you all understand why I am so passionate about these contextual issues, how they must be handled. Understanding that passion about me, if you understand why I'm so big into consistency and the narrative has to make sense and all those things, then you'll understand why I talk about such things as covenant creation or preterism and the other strangely deta- strange details of scripture that we sometimes focus on. Again, the goal is never to endeavor to confuse us or to tickle our ears and give us some new teachings that would make us uh, feel like we're on the up and up with the postmodern society. It's never the goal but rather to fall in line with a rightly divided perspective so that we would not be ashamed, which I continually demand must come from properly placing ourselves into the narrative, not allowing a historical amnesia to occur and just plopping ourselves into the story wherever we see fit, but instead properly applying the details from the right position, the rightly divided position. Allow me to summarize our contextual narrative up to this point. Um, And prayerfully, further our immersion and saturation into Christ's gospel. So we started at Genesis, what, two, three months ago. The scriptures begin with God creating his covenant people, heaven and earth. Through an ancient Near Eastern temple text, which we do indeed find in Genesis chapter one, God demonstrates his sovereignty over all of creation and sets Adam, a human, as his image. This Adam begins the ancestry of a people who will later be called Israel and will be noted as the covenant people. Adam is the earliest conceptual reality or spiritual picture that Israel had of their relationship with God. It marked out the law, the sin, and the death that would come to plague the covenant people all the way up till the time of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Genesis, we read a family lineage. We read about the time of the patriarchs all the way up until the children of Israel going to Egypt with Joseph and their eventual bondage in Egypt. God then raises up Moses, a prophet, to lead them out. And with mighty judgments, God did. And thus baptizing them into Moses by way of the Red Sea, he marked out salvation for his people. A beautiful example of salvation in Christ, a God who provides salvation, who makes a distinction between his people and the nations. I'd like to close by sharing and challenging us with this rabbinical insight. No matter how great the achievement, celebration, as the Song of the Sea here in Exodus chapter 15 shows, celebration must invariably lead to challenge. If we celebrate too long, if we remain rooted in the glow of past accomplishments, we endanger those very accomplishments. Only by moving forward, Only by discerning and meeting new challenges that develop by the day can we preserve the past as we secure the future. As we've been thinking through these details in Exodus and prayerfully you see the parallels that mark out the truth of the gospel, I would hope it causes praise, of course, but a praise that produces action. Now that you have marked out your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and your ends of the earth in your saturated guide, take this week to realize you're not insignificant. Take this week to embrace a challenge and to enrich and satisfy and saturate the world around us with the gospel. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you that your words and your story, that it blesses the pages of scripture, has the potential and power to invigorate us, Lord, to lead a reformation, a revival, a restoration that this world so direly needs. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we're not insignificant. We thank you that you are present through your church and that you have given us a beautiful story that we might understand you and how you have made yourself known to us. Thank you, Lord. Challenge us this week. Saturate us this week, Lord, and lead us to act intentionally. We lift up all things for your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.